If you've listened to the last three episodes, our series called Lost and Found, you learned about three kidnapping cases where the victims were held captive for months or years. Whenever these cases are discussed, invariably, people have certain questions, including, how did this happen? What made this person a target? Is it random, or is there something we can do to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe? And, why didn't anyone notice what was happening and save those girls sooner? And finally, why didn't they try harder to escape? It seems like there are at least a few occasions where they might have been able to get help or save themselves in some way. Why didn't they? In the special bonus episode, we will try to answer these questions. I will share what insight I have about the psychology of kidnap victims and also share with you what you can do to possibly prevent this kind of harm coming to yourself or a loved one. In the case of both J.C. Dugard and Elizabeth Smart, both girls had almost no control at all over their initial abduction. J.C. was only 11 years old. She was walking a few yards from her house to the school bus in broad daylight. She hesitated only a moment when the car with her abductors in it pulled up beside her. Perhaps she could have been instructed to run and scream whenever anyone tried to approach her, but this is somewhat implausible. We all have to live in society, and we hope to teach our children not to be afraid of everything and everyone, to be cautious, but not paranoid. Elizabeth Smart was taken from her bed in the middle of the night. It should have been the very safest place she could have been. While some say she should have screamed and alerted her family immediately, I would imagine for a barely 14-year-old, waking up with a knife against your throat could surely make you freeze in fear. Her kidnapper was able to take her unseen and unheard with her family a few feet away by threatening to kill her if she made a sound and also threatening to kill her family if she alerted anyone. The girls in Cleveland, Michelle, Amanda, and Gina, had a different experience because while at first they went willingly with their abductor, accepting a ride that was offered, they each also recognized him as a parent of a friend. Their guard was down because, as many would, they felt safe with a person they knew, especially because it was a friend's father. One thing did stand out to me, though, during the initial abductions of the girls in Cleveland. First, all three later reported feeling a sense of unease with Castro, but dismissing it. I'm a big believer in following your intuition, or sixth sense, as it were. I believe that sometimes we just feel what's right, or not, and often it serves us to pay attention to these feelings. The second thing is that all three girls reported wanting to refuse Castro's suggestions to either go with him to his house and or go upstairs. But because he was the parent of a friend, they didn't want to embarrass anyone by refusing, in essence, to admit they didn't trust him. So they went along with his suggestions at their peril. I think it's important to remember whether you are young, middle-aged or older, female or male, and whether it is someone you know or not, that you have the right to refuse anything to anyone if you want to, without worrying about embarrassing someone or worrying about what they might think of you. We teach our children to be polite, especially to adults, which is a good thing. But we also need to teach them that politeness doesn't mean that you have to agree to do whatever a grown-up might ask you to do. It's a good idea to play out scenarios with your kids, kind of a what-would-you-do exercise, to help them to feel confident should a situation arise, to be able to say no, run away, or any other action that might keep them safe from a predator. While I'm in no way blaming the victims, all of the girls in these cases were targeted by master manipulators who planned and carried out these abductions, and anyone might have fallen prey to such methodical planning. 
I am suggesting that we learn from what has already happened, knowing that there are people in the world capable of these heinous acts and take steps to stay as safe as possible. It's also important to look out for one another. In all three cases, these girls were able to be hidden away for years, even when there were neighbors close by who had opportunity to see them and say something. Many just explained it away without questioning, which may be a natural reaction. We don't tend to believe that our neighbor, who seems normal, could be a sexual predator or kidnapper. But again, when things seem out of place, wrong, or you just have a gut instinct that something is amiss, these days you can make an anonymous report or just ask your local police to do a welfare check to make sure that all is as it should be. Unfortunately, in some of these cases, a call was placed and a police officer either decided to ignore it or didn't go beyond a door knock without following up or doing any other investigation. Perhaps if more people log calls, complaints, and concerns, a neighborhood could spur law enforcement officers to take further action. Finally, the biggest question that is asked about people kept in captivity over a period of time is, why didn't they try to escape or call attention to themselves when they had a chance? In each of these cases, there was at least a few times when it was possible to cry out for help or take a chance to escape. Elizabeth Smart was taken to a party with her abductors. There was a room full of people, and you might ask, couldn't she have started screaming for help? J.C. Dugard helped her kidnappers with their printing business, even taking phone orders from customers. Why didn't she call 911 or find a way to get a message out with a customer? Ariel Castro's grown children were present at his house several times. Why didn't the girls cry out from the basement for help or at least rattle their chains so that someone could hear they were down there? To try and answer these baffling questions, we need to talk about a psychological phenomenon known as Stockholm Syndrome. On August 23, 1973, a bank in Stockholm, Sweden was held up. During the course of the robbery, four hostages were taken and held captive in the bank for six days. The hostages were strapped with dynamite and held in a bank vault until they were finally rescued on August 28th. Law enforcement and the public were shocked when, after their capture, they seemed to side with the bank robbers and were more fearful of their rescuers. The former hostages came to believe that the robbers were actually protecting them from the police. One woman became engaged to one of the criminals, and another started a legal defense fund to aid their captors in their criminal defense. They had apparently bonded with their captors. Stockholm Syndrome is a psychological term that was coined to describe this behavior by kidnap victims. In this syndrome, kidnap victims are said to have formed a positive bond with their captors. The term has also come to be known as capture bonding, or terror bonding, or trauma bonding. Some of the particulars that create this psychological phenomenon include the victim feels terrified due to an incident that comes at them very unexpectedly. The victim feels very certain that they are going to die or to be killed. The victim is infantilized by the perpetrator. They are put back into a childlike state in which they cannot eat, speak, or toilet without permission or assistance from their captor. After a time of deprivation or abuse, the smallest acts of kindness from their captor prompts a primitive gratitude from the victim for the gift of life. The hostage can, in time, experience a powerful positive feeling towards their captor or captors. They may be in denial that this person created the situation and or they may believe that it is their abuser who is going to keep them safe or allow their survival. True cases of Stockholm Syndrome are rare. While some of the victims I discussed in Lost and Found exhibited some of these traits, for the most part, what they experienced was ongoing terror and hatred for their captors. I will discuss some of this in more detail in a moment, 
But first, I want to share what is perhaps the most famous case of Stockholm Syndrome by discussing the Patty Hearst kidnapping. On February 4th, 1974, Patricia or Patty Hearst was kidnapped from her apartment in Berkeley, California. Patricia Hearst was the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper magnate. She was 19 years old and a student at UC Berkeley. Her kidnapping was orchestrated by the left-wing militant group, the Sibianese Liberation Army, or SLA, which was led by a man named Donald DeFries. Initially, the group planned to kidnap her with the goal to use her family's political influence to free two imprisoned SLA members. When that didn't happen, they demanded that the Hearst family conduct a wide-scale food giveaway to needy families. The family raised $2 million and organized a food donation in the San Francisco Bay Area. The food giveaway descended into chaos, and the SLA refused to release Patty. Meanwhile, Patty Hearst was held in the SLA's hideout in Oakland, California. She was locked in a closet, handcuffed and blindfolded. Only DeFries would come to her, threatening to kill her and spouting his militant ideals. She was left there for weeks. She was only let out for meals. Still blindfolded, she was unable to see her captors, but was present for their political discussions. Patty was also told by DeFries that she had an option. She would either be killed by the SLA or she could choose to join up with them and fight for their cause. Patty told him that she would fight with them. It was then that her blindfold was removed and she was able to see her kidnappers for the first time. After this, she was given lessons on her duties as an SLA member, including weapons drills every day. She was also required to submit to rape by one member, William Wolfe, and later also by DeFries. On April 3rd, two months after her abduction, the SLA released an audio tape of Patty Hearst, or Tanya, as she was now called, stating that she had joined with the SLA in their fight to free the oppressed. Twelve days later, the San Francisco branch of the Hibernia Bank was robbed at gunpoint by several people. One of those people, caught on bank surveillance cameras, was Patricia Hearst, shouting commands to bank customers while wielding an assault weapon. In May, the home where the SLA had been hiding out was discovered and surrounded. A shootout commenced and a fire engulfed the building. Six SLA members died. Hearst and a few other members had escaped the house and were fugitives from the law for several months. Finally, she was arrested in San Francisco with another female SLA member. When she was booked into jail, she listed her occupation as urban guerrilla and asked her attorney to relay the following message. Tell everybody that I'm smiling, that I feel free and strong, and I send my greetings and love to all the sisters and brothers out there. After court-appointed doctors and psychiatrists examined Hearst over several days, they determined that she was suffering from a classic case of coercive persuasion or brainwashing. After some weeks in jail, Hearst renounced her SLA allegiance. Patty Hearst alone was arraigned for the Hibernia Bank robbery. Her attorney, F. Lee Bailey, presented the defense of coercion or duress affecting her intent at the time of the robbery. On March 20, 1976, Patty Hearst was sentenced to seven years for the bank robbery. Her sentence was commuted by President Jimmy Carter, and after 22 months, she was freed. The Stockholm Bank robbery victims were held captive for six days. Patty Hearst was held for a total of three months before she fled the SLA house and went on the lam. The victims in the three abduction cases I outlined in the Lost and Found series were held much longer. Elizabeth Smart was held by Brian David Mitchell and Wanda Barzee for nine months. 
Michelle, Amanda, and Gina were held by Ariel Castro for 9 to 11 years. J.C. Dugard was held by Philip and Nancy Garrido for 18 years. Given the length of their captivity and the abuse and deprivation they experienced, I'm in awe of how strong they remained, relating to their captors enough to stay alive, but continuing to have hope that someday they would be free. But there were definitely some trauma bonding that happened in each of these cases, and knowing now that this was a survival strategy helps us to put their actions into perspective. To some extent, all of the captives learned to relate to their captors in order to survive. They were dependent on them for food, shelter, and other basic necessities like clothing or a toilet. They also learned to find ways to bond with their captors in order to remain alive. Instinctively, they figured out if they could become humanized in the eyes of their captors, it would be more unlikely that they would kill them. Elizabeth used her knowledge of the Mormon religion to speak Mitchell's language and even once used his beliefs to manipulate him to take her closer to home, where she might be discovered and rescued. Gina, Amanda, and Michelle would do chores and cook meals for their abductor, once they were given enough freedom off their chains to do so. The fact that Mitchell was the father of two children born to J.C. Dugard while in captivity, and that Amanda Berry gave birth to one of Ariel Castro's children, this complicates matters in a few ways. Dugard, in essence, stopped trying to figure out how to escape, knowing that she would never leave her children behind. Even if she were to escape, she was afraid that Greedo might kill them before she could send help. Both her and her children now were dependent on him for survival. Amanda Berry was given special privileges by Castro. She admits that sometimes she was jealous when he gave more attention to the other girls, and she was also given more freedom once her daughter was old enough to ask why she was locked up. She also reports that she had mixed feelings about Castro, hating him for what he did to her, taking her freedom and the physical and sexual abuse he subjected her to, but feeling grateful to him at how gentle and loving he was to his daughter, the daughter that called him daddy and could be heard crying for him on Amanda's 911 call after she escaped. You can see the extent of the damage that was done to each girl when you examine their reactions at finally being discovered and rescued. When the police entered Castro's house to rescue Michelle Knight and Gina de Jesus, they both cowered in fear, believing not that it might be the police or another person coming to rescue them, but robbers or other dangerous people that would probably now kill them. Their initial reaction was not to run to anyone who wasn't Castro, like we might think, but after so many years of fearing for their lives, to hide and cower in fear until they were finally coaxed out by the police officers. J.C. Dugard was questioned by Garrido's probation officer and was terrified to give her true name, and only did so once she was taken out of his presence, believing, until the end, that to go against him, even in the presence of others who were trying to help her, meant certain death. And for her part, Elizabeth Smart says that she never bonded or felt grateful to Mitchell or Barzee. If you read her story, you will find that she didn't receive even small kindnesses from either of them, but was often starved and was subjected to harsh conditions over the entire nine months. Because of his constant threats of death, she was terrified to even try to escape. She was also afraid for her family. When she was finally discovered, she also wasn't able to answer the officer's questions until he gently coaxed it out of her. One controversy around her rescue, I believe, has been cleared up. When she was separated from her abductors and placed in a police car, it was reported that she asked, What's going to happen to them? Will they be okay? People were aghast and couldn't believe she could care about the kidnappers enough to worry about them. Elizabeth explains in her book that what she asked was only, what is going to happen to them? 
In her traumatized state, she was terrified that they would put her in a cell along with Mitchell and Barzee. The police had actually handcuffed her before putting her in the police car, so she believed she was being arrested for some reason. And she believed once she was locked up with them, Mitchell would use the opportunity to kill her so that she couldn't testify against him. Her concern wasn't for the well-being of her captors, but for her own safety. She initially still couldn't believe that she was no longer in danger. I hope this helps my listeners understand how and why victims might seem to be complacent over a period of captivity. It isn't that they are so bonded with their captors that they don't want to leave, but that the abuse and the terror that they are subjected to, especially over a long period of time, creates a mental state that causes them to believe that to do so would be fatal. Trauma, such as the trauma these victims experienced, is something that most of us, thankfully, can never really understand. I hope having a little better understanding of what they went through will help us to have compassion for those that do endure such horrific experiences without judging the choices they make in order to survive. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. To give feedback or suggest show topics, you can find me on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod and on Twitter at Upon a Crime. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher and rate and comment if you like it. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>